Well, let's come together in prayer. Let's pray and ask God's blessing upon us as we think about his word. We come, Heavenly Father, to the end of this story, but not the end of the whole story, the beginning of another story, and we are thankful for all that we've learned and pray that you might encourage us and bless us as we think about it further, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, we do come to the last chapter of the book of Ruth, the conclusion to the story, and while it does have a happy ending, I want us to see this morning it's much, much more than a Hollywood man marries woman, a baby comes and they live happily ever after story. We know this because in some ways the great problem that the narrator of the book has set before us and set out to present and has now resolved for us is the question, how shall the name of Elimelech be preserved in Israel with no heir? This has become evident along the way. The problem has been stated for us as we've learned about his own death and then how his widow cannot bear him a son and how Ruth, his daughter-in-law, has likewise lost her husband as has Orpah, the wife of his other son, And so Elimelech's name, along with his allotment in the promised land, will surely be lost forever. And for that to happen was a terrible prospect. But the answer has been gently provided for us through the book with the introduction of the godly man, the Israelite, by the name of Boaz the man who belongs to the family and the clan of Elimelech. And the writer has weaved a thread of hope into this tapestry of grief and sadness. What if Boaz, what if Boaz could marry Ruth? Well, he can, but as we saw last chapter, there's someone else closer, some other relative more closely related than he was to Elimelech. Someone else who could step in, someone else who could marry Ruth, someone else who has a prior claim. And no matter what Boaz thinks about Ruth, he might love her a lot. He can do nothing until that someone else says, I can do nothing. I can't step in. I can't redeem. Only then can he redeem. And so we come to the completion of the story. And we note from the outset that Ruth and Naomi are now in the background. They barely speak. In fact, everything falls to Boaz. And as we watch him act on behalf of Naomi and Ruth, I want you to notice three things with me. First, we see in the chapter the actions of a kind redeemer. Verse 1 tells us that Boaz is a man of his word. So having promised that night before that he would deal with the issue, that he would act swiftly and surely, it seems that he did. He moved directly from the threshing floor to the city gate and there he's taken up a seat by the city gate. Now, the city gate in those days was the equivalent of the county courthouse. It was the place of business, the place of legal transaction, of judicial decision. 
And by sitting down, Boaz was giving public notice, just by sitting there, of his intention to conduct a legal transaction. And there in the wonderful providence of God, just happened, remember that phrase, it just happened that the man he needed to speak to is passing by. There he goes, he's walking past the city gate. And Boaz is quick off the mark. Turn aside, friend. Turn aside. Come and sit down with me. And then he calls the court into session. Ten elders of the city are asked to join them. And there they all sit. And there he carefully begins to present his case. And his case is clear. Naomi is selling a parcel of land of her husband, Elimelech. It's yours to buy. You are the first in line, and if you will redeem it, do so. But if not, tell me, for I am next in line after you. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. The man to whom the proposal is made says, yes, I will redeem it. In other words, he will add another plot of land to his growing real estate portfolio. Job done. Finished. End of story? Not quite. Boaz must tell him the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And he adds that if he buys the land, then he also acquires the young widow, uh, Ruth, whom he would expected to marry and produce and raise an heir on his relative's behalf. Now, hidden extras in any sale are usually items to make the purchase even more desirable. Think steak knives. Think more steak knives. But this one has the opposite effect. If the expectation to do these things, to marry the widow, comes with the land, then the man replies with a quick, well, thanks, but no thanks. I'm out of this. No signature. You see what's going on, don't you? While the man stood to gain, he was happy to be that redeemer of the land. But if it cost him too much, if it endangered his own inheritance, then thank you, but no thank you. Not for me. He defers the matter to Boaz and withdraws and hands the man his sandal, hands it to Boaz, indicating something like a handshake, and the contract is settled, and Boaz calls the elders to witness that he's bought the field, and the mother-in-law, and the wife, putting himself, by doing so, having to face the same liabilities and the same risks as the man who just said, no, I can't. Boaz says, yes, I can, and more than that, I will. But whereas the other man is unwilling to take the risk, Boaz is willing and prepared to give everything to redeem this woman and secure the name of this relative. Hold that thought in mind, the willingness of the Redeemer. Second in the chapter, we see the blessings of a broad covenant When we come down to verses 11 and 12, we'll see there the blessings pronounced by the people and the elders upon Boaz 
Boaz and Ruth as their marriage becomes a reality. We are witnesses, they say. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Now, you remember who Leah and Rachel are. They were the wives of Jacob. By comparing Ruth to Rachel and to Leah, these elders are saying something filled with significance about this young Moabite woman, Ruth. Further significance is added in their prayer that Ruth's son would be like Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. See, Judah was Boaz's direct ancestor. And Bethlehem, right in the head, in the middle of the allotted tribe of Judah. And Tamar, like Ruth, was a Gentile. But unlike Ruth, if you read the story, Tamar's actions were seedy and manipulative, whereas Ruth was godly and pure. But in making these connections, the elders are recognising Ruth as a true Israelite, even though she's a Moabite by birth. They're saying she belongs as much as we do and they are praying she will have a role in the purpose of God. It's almost as if they can foresee what's to come, that this marriage portends great future blessing, not just for Boaz and Ruth, not just them, but actually for all the people of God in the history of salvation. And so it will, as we will see. But now we note that Ruth, the outsider, has become Ruth, the insider. Ruth, the stranger, Ruth, the Moabite girl, is now Ruth, the heir of God's promises, and will be intimately involved in the outworking of his plans. That's what's happened to her. As she marries Boaz, she becomes part of his status. She's in the covenant. She's brought in. By redeeming her, Boaz takes her from the state of not belonging and brings her into the family of God. And one of those to whom the promises to Abraham will be given. Now, think about that in New Testament terms. Paul says of believers in Jesus, in Ephesians 2, he says this, he says this of us. Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's Ruth, isn't it? But that's you. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. See, when you put your hope in the kinsman redeemer, the one who is closer than a brother, called Jesus, your status changes. 
you stop being a stranger to the people of God. You start becoming a member of the family. No matter how far outside you may think yourself, through Jesus Christ that way is opened and you are brought in, you are adopted into the family. This is what the gospel does. It brings in people who don't belong. Because none of us belong. All of us are born on the outside of that family. And the gospel not only brings us in, but makes us heirs of the rich heritage of the people of God. This promise of God to Abraham is yours through Christ. The gospel makes sinners saints. The gospel forgives the guilty. The gospel cleanses the dirty. The gospel releases the captive. The gospel sets prisoners free. The gospel brings adoption to those who need it. When you do that, you come in by no work of your own. But you do it by resting like Naomi and Ruth entirely on the work of your kinsman redeemer. And just as all the attention falls upon in this chapter upon what Boaz says and what Boaz does, so all the attention in the rest of the New Testament falls upon what Jesus says, what Jesus does. It's his work that gets you into the family. It's his death on the cross that saves. All the attention falls on him. All the action is done by him. And all you do is have to belong to him to receive everything that God would give you in Christ. There's nothing for you to do but trust him. That is to say there is room for you in the kingdom of God because of the perfect work of the kinsman redeemer. And all you need to come to do to come in from outside the family into the family is to rest in what he's done. It's a wonderful illustration of salvation. There's none so far away, none so lost, that if they come to Christ, they are rejected. We who once were strangers and aliens without hope and without God in the world can be brought near and made fellow citizens and members of the household of God. This Redeemer was willing. He was willing. And he brings outsiders in to the family. Third, here in this chapter, now verses 13 to 21 tell us of the arrival of a welcome son. I love how the story of Ruth moves beyond the love story of Boaz and Ruth to include the birth of their son Obed because it shows us that their being joined together is bigger and more important in the plan of God than they could ever have understood. They had no idea. There's a couple of things to note in the text. We see in verse 13 that it says the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Now this is found only twice elsewhere in the scriptures. That expression, the Lord gave her conception with the most significant being the first use in relation to Eve whose son God promised would crush the head of the serpent. 
And then we note that Ruth falls pregnant after being married 10 years previously with no children. And so that in that joined the women of Scripture who were given children when it seems that all hope of earthly childbearing, earthly hope of childbearing was over. Think Sarah. Think Hannah. Think Elizabeth. And then note that although Ruth received this blessing as a gift of grace to God from her, she names the child because of the significance, of his significance to all of them. They called him Obed. Obed means servant. Now put all that together and see what we're being taught. Here is a child born as as a result of God's will and this birth places Ruth among the mothers of the Messiah and his name is Servant. Hmm. If Boaz is a picture of Jesus, so too is Obed, in whom the hope of redemption becomes fully realised. Obed directs our gaze away from himself to the servant who would be born many years later. Jesus is the child of Bethlehem in whom God visits the world. Jesus is Eve's son who comes to crush the serpent's head. Jesus is the son of the virgin to whom the Lord gives conception. And in Isaiah 53, we see very clearly, Jesus is the Lord who comes to do God's will. It's impossible not to be thinking about Jesus if you read this part of Ruth carefully. And so we have this great end note to the book of Ruth, this genealogy that brings us to none other than David, something that Matthew picks up in his opening words of the gospel. Did you see the connection? Where the book of Ruth ends and where the gospel of Matthew starts. Now there's a wonderful story that I think highlights how the genealogy with which this book concludes ought to function for us. We've heard quite a lot about Bible translators this year. And so it's fitting this story centres upon two Bible translators, Des and Jenny Oakridge from Wycliffe, who many years ago were working in Papua New Guinea with the Binyu Marian people. They'd spent 10 years living and working among them, writing the language for the first time and producing portions of scripture in their mother tongue. In all those years, they had very little success in winning anyone to faith in Jesus. But one day, all of that changed. They'd just finished the translation of the Gospel of Matthew, but had forgotten to translate the opening first 17 verses. Which is, of course, if we'd kept reading this morning, the genealogy of Jesus in which Ruth and Boaz both appear. Des and Jenny worked with a mother tongue assistant, a man called Sisia. And to their surprise, that day, Sisia sailed through the translation of the genealogy. He translated with an eagerness. And when he finished, he stood up and he declared to Des and Jenny, 
there's going to be an important meeting tonight and I want you to come and bring what we've done today. Here's the account of what Des wrote. The house was packed. It was overflowing with a sense of tension. I was led to a seat on the floor right up in the centre of the room and then Sissia spoke up. I've asked Des to come and read what we have translated this morning. I can't tell it to you. I want you to hear it yourselves. The room became extraordinarily still. Every eye was fixed on him. And he read in the language, These are the ancestors of Jesus Messiah, a descendant of King David and of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob, Judah, Judah, Perez and Zerah. He says, as I read, I could sense that every word I spoke was being grabbed and critically examined by the listeners and that one or two or three of them were moving closer and closer to me, that other people were pushing into the central room. I suddenly felt scared. I didn't know if the list of names had offended them, some ritual taboo about which I knew nothing, If so, and the people were angry, I was dead meat. So I kept on reading. Mathan was the father of Jacob, Jacob, Joseph, Joseph, the husband of Mary, the mother of Jesus, the Messiah. There are 14 generations from Abraham to David and 14 from David to the exile in Babylon and 14 from the exile to Christ. I raised my eyes and saw not anger, but great surprise. One stood up. Why didn't you tell us this before? It's only real people who record the genealogical table. Another said, Jesus must be a real person. Someone else cried with astonishment. Jesus must have been a real man on this earth. This is not white man's magic. What the mission has taught us is real. Yes, real. Des pondered on that as he made his way home. This ancient list of names, he said, in which Ruth features, had ratified Jesus as a real person. And now to them, the truth of the scriptures was beyond all doubt. What do we conclude about the book of Ruth? Just this, that God was at work in the whole story. He was at work when he sent Naomi to Moab with Elimelech and he was at work when he brought Naomi and Ruth back, broken and bereft and alone in grief and bitterness. He was at work when he brought Ruth that day into the field that just happened to belong to Boaz He was at work the day when Boaz met the other redeemer at the city gate and he just happened to say, apart from walking past, I can't do it. He was at work when Boaz married Ruth. He was at work when Obed was conceived. And he was at work when Obed fathered Jesse and Jesse fathered David, the king. In it all, God was working to give you something 
to bless the whole world through the provision of his son. Now all along in the unfolding of this story, I've hinted again and again how Boaz points us to Jesus and never is that more clear than right here. Boaz is a reminder of Jesus, of whom Paul could say, though he was rich, he became poor for our sakes that we might become rich. Or as he says in Philippians, who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is that redeemer. Jesus is the one who bears the full context, the full cost of redemption. Jesus incurs all the obligation on himself. Jesus pays with his lifeblood. Jesus is willing to step in and redeem. Well, we might remember that and note that many people look around for a redeemer in family or celebrity or politician or religious leader, but they cannot redeem because they can't save themselves. But Jesus will save all who come to him, for he alone has the words of eternal life and there is no one else who has given their blood for your salvation. This great genealogy here at the end of the book functions like landing lights that illuminate the runway at the airport at night for the planes to land safely. Each point of that genealogy is like a little light that turns your gaze forward to Jesus and what he brings and redemption in his name. The great pressing question that the book of Ruth demands that we all answer is, do you know him? Do you know him? The PNG tribe of people discovered his reality. They also discovered that salvation is found in being in connection with him. Throughout the book we've seen God the matchmaker leading Ruth into the arms of Boaz and Naomi back to himself. But the final purpose of God in the book of Ruth is to bring you to your bridegroom so that you may say, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Christ is all in all to me, fairer than 10,000. Do you have him? Do you know him? It's he to whom the book of Ruth points us. He is all in all and all you could ever need. And my prayer is that the Lord may bring us together to see him and how wonderful his grace that again we might put our hope in him. Let's pray. Now gracious God, we thank you so much for the wonder of your word, how it all connects together so beautifully, that Ruth could be part of the great family tree of Abraham and be an ancestor not only of David but of Jesus herself. Thank you, Heavenly Father, 
that you have done this for our benefit and our blessing. That as we now look back and marvel upon the way in which you have arranged all things according to your purpose, so we have the confidence that you will do it also for all things that are to come, all that you have promised you will fulfil, all that you have said will be done according to your purpose. And we long for the day when Christ is revealed and we gaze upon him who came for us in fulfilment of your plan. Bless us as we think about these things. Send us in our way rejoicing because of the great plan you had for the salvation of your people. And help us, we pray, to be found in him, not trusting any other, but trusting him who gave himself for us. We pray in his name.